And if you would turn with me now to the conclusion of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 18. I had someone say to me last week that he was surprised I didn't just finish the letter, uh, verses 7 through 25, and I was inclined to do that, but I'm glad now that I didn't. I think as I read this, you'll see, once again, he says a great deal, and you might be sad it's only one sermon, though I doubt that. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 18, to the end of the letter, he says, Pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things, desiring to live honorably, but I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I appeal to you, brethren... Bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you in a few words. Know that our brother Timothy has been set free with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints, those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Amen. And let us pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, as we close out the book of Hebrews, we uh, first of all thank you for it. We recognize uh, this is... Uh, written by one of the apostles, but done under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It is one of your many and precious gifts to the church. We cherish every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. We would not seek to live apart from it, for we know that we can't. Perhaps our body is going to live on a bit of bread, but our souls, which live forever, depend upon the word of God. But there is something about this book that's especially precious uh, now to us, at least to me. And so we are grateful, O God, and pray that Though we concluded it might stay with us for a very long time. And we might come back to it again and again in our private devotions. But now as we close, we pray, oh God, it might be, fit, uh, it might be closed in a fitting way through the preaching. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have here, obviously, as I've been saying, uh, the conclusion of the letter, the book of, of Hebrews. And may I confess that I'm a little sad about it. I've grown fond of the book of Hebrews in ways... Uh, Well, that I didn't expect, but I suppose in a sense I should say that I did expect because there is something about preaching a book. And I would also have to say, remember, I've been in the pews as well, sitting under preaching uh, that makes you grow fonder of books. Uh, But something especially special about this book. Yet I never imagined I could preach it all the way through. You remember I said at the beginning Uh, The horrible experience Charles Spurgeon had sitting under the preaching of this book, uh, expositing uh, the preacher, expositing the whole book all the way through. And he determined he would never subject his hearers to that. And so Spurgeon always preached standalone sermons. Well, I don't agree with Spurgeon. And I I hope I didn't give any of you that impression. I hope that we have a sense rather of, of the benefits of expository preaching, especially with a book like this. And so the other thing I would say here at the end is not only that I'm a little sad about it, leaving it behind after today, but that I'm also amazed by this book. I never thought so much consideration of a single subject, that subject being, as you know, the uh, the priesthood of Jesus Christ, could be so edifying. Isn't the priesthood, after all, an Old Testament category? Well, it is, but only in order, as all the categories of the Old Testament were, uh, to typify the greater realities of the New Covenant. And so it's important to recognize that the the idea of a priesthood is more valuable for the Christian than it is for the Jew. 
And now I find, having preached this book, that I can't think of my priest, Jesus Christ. I can't think of Jesus Christ, my Savior, without thinking of his priesthood. And even that much of my own experience of his grace suddenly has become clearer to me. The priesthood of Jesus Christ is what explains almost all of his saving work to us and in us. His partaking of our humanity, his dying in our place, his interceding for us now at the throne of grace, as well as his continual supply of grace to us now in time of need. All of these fall under the rubric of his priesthood. And so it is, I think you would agree, the most wonderful and edifying subject a Christian could possibly consider as it causes the glory of his person and work to shine forth so brightly that we cannot now imagine these things and these blessings in any other way. Yes, we Christians have an altar. We saw that last time. We have a sacrifice. We have a high priest in heaven. And thank God that we do. These things not only render the old covenant obsolete in its ceremonies and sacrifices, but they form the very basis of our salvation. And the more properly we grasp this, the more we will approximate the great aim set before us in this epistle, which is that we might possess a full assurance of faith. You remember that on the other side of the spectrum, with apostasy being at one extreme, And the letter has had a great deal to say about apostasy. But on the other side of the spectrum, the other extreme is assurance. And in warning us against apostasy, he is encouraging us to possess an assurance. Chapter 6, verse 11. He says, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. Chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Again, holding fast without wavering is another way of describing assurance. But let us see, now that we are at the end, what we have seen, and that is that this assurance is only one true basis, and that is the priesthood of Jesus Christ, as it is found only at this altar, and as it is described so fully and so beautifully in the book of Hebrews. The man who truly grasps the great ground of his salvation is the man man who has assurance, and the man who will not waver. And so let us all see what that great ground is, seeking not to be carried about with various and strange doctrines, but seeing that our hearts are established firmly in the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today and forever, and always seek salvation at the altar of his cross and nowhere else. But as we've seen repeatedly, this salvation is local, by which I mean it has a locality. That has also been something that has been stressed throughout the epistle. It is local in the sense that it occurred not on the altar of the old covenant temple, but it occurred on Calvary's hill outside the gate where Christ is crucified upon the cross. And so he says, as he was saying in the last passage we considered, that you literally have to leave Jerusalem or Judaism. You have to go outside of the old covenant and the temple in order to get to him. 
It's also local in the sense that he has now gone into heaven. And by our prayers, we meet with him there now. And by faith and perseverance, as pilgrims, we will soon journey on to be with him. But it's also local. And this comes out at the very end of the epistle in the sense that this salvation brings us within the sphere of the local church. Hence the emphasis last time on our leaders. Remember them, he says, submit to them and obey them, for they, along with Christ, are ministers of the same salvation. And it is with this thought that he closes very naturally, not in the prior, uh, not just in the prior verses, but now as we come to the closing verses. Uh, And he begins with an appeal for their prayers. Pray for us, he says. And for for a very obvious reason, because, again, he never thought to try to live the Christian life or get to heaven on his own. This man, like us, is a pilgrim. And what pilgrim ever did? What pilgrim ever thought to get there on his own without beseeching his brother for his prayers? Well, sadly, I think we could agree that many do. Many pilgrims, especially today, think to get there all on their own. But soon they will discover their error And hopefully before it's too late, pray pray for us, he says. Indeed, this is the appeal of every minister. I wanted you to see it in Ephesians. Paul saying, I want you to pray for me so that I would have boldness to stand and to preach. It's the appeal of every Christian. When we're in hardships, would you pray for me? And yet I would lament. I think you would agree with me. It's sad how easily we tell each other, well, I'll pray for you when we don't really mean it. It's become a kind of Christian cliche because we don't know what else to say. But we ought to see that true Christian fellowship is built around prayer and prayer for one another. Let me just ask you, assuming the standpoint of the man who wrote this letter, as he says at the end, pray for us. Do you pray for me? And do you pray for the elders? Go back to verse 17. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. And then he says, pray for us. Do you see the connection? It's very obvious. Do you expect to benefit from a ministry that you do not pray for? Or do you pray that God would bless the preaching and the minister and our worship together and then come looking for the blessing? You see, prayer is so vital because by it we bring our brother and our worship before God in advance. We tell him that if he does not bless, there can be no blessing. But having prayed, we begin to expect it. By prayer in the presence of God, we suddenly realize that God takes a great interest in all these things. We already knew it, but it it occurs to us with fresh power in the presence of God in prayer before the throne of grace. We see that he's not only interested in my own personal salvation, but he's also interested in my brother. And he wants the preaching and the service to go well. He wants us to be united and enjoy true Christian fellowship. And equally in praying for my brother, suddenly I find that my heart is now bound to him more closely. I cannot bring him before the throne of grace without experiencing great sympathy for him. Especially in the presence of so great a sympathy as Jesus has for him as his great high priest. And so the amazing thing about prayer is that it actually changes me, the one who prays. Even though I prayed for my brother in the end, it was I who was changed. But then let me say this as well. I've always found that the greatest blessings of the Christian life come by prayer. 
Prayer is the way to exercise faith, chapter 11. It is a getting within the veil, chapter 10. It is a coming to God. It is an appeal to his grace and mercy and a finding it in the presence of Jesus Christ, our great high priest. And it is in this sense that we understand what he says in chapter 10, verse 22, a description of prayer. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Or what has been my favorite verse of the of the whole book, which I've repeated, I think, in every sermon. I don't think I preached a single sermon without quoting this verse. Chapter 4, verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He's describing prayer in that verse. The exercising of faith. The bold approach and the fullness of grace that awaits us there that we find by prayer. That is true prayer. Do you know anything about it? Do you know what it is to pray like this? True prayer in the presence of God at the throne of grace with Jesus there, mediating mercy full and free, and then finding it in the hour of need, in the hour of temptation, in the hour of sin. That is the time to exercise your faith and to pray, and then to find out whether you really believe these things and whether you're really a Christian after all. Yes, grace is always available to the, to the Christian, to the true Christian, and by prayer he finds it. But viewing prayer like this, Can we pray for our brother and not expect great things for him as well? Pray, he doesn't say, for yourselves. Pray for us. If providence, he's saying, has separated us, then prayer will reunite us if God wills. I especially urge you to do this that I may be restored to you the sooner. And soon we'll see why he was so eager for that. The short answer is he was eager to preach to them. But another thing we notice here about prayer, which is also highly interesting, is what he says about the conscience. We've noticed uh, repeated references to the conscience. The old covenant ceremonies could do nothing to cleanse the conscience of those who offered them. But look at what he says. Pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all thought, in all things desiring to live honorably. You see, he had a good conscience But still he needed prayer. Isn't that amazing to see? He wasn't saying, as the Roman Catholics do, that he needed others to intercede for his salvation, that he might have a clean conscience. No, his conscience was already clean. Jesus had seen to that. And it's obvious when you read the book of Hebrews that this was a man who understood the gospel. He he was a man who understood what it was to have a conscience that was cleansed in the presence of God by the blood of Jesus. He didn't need them to pray that his conscience would be clean. Equally, by God's grace, he was even able, able, he says, to live honorably before others. He was a man who lived upright, as all the apostles did in the presence of God and men. Yet still, he says, pray for us. Well, you might think, what for? What did he need their prayers for? He was already doing so well. He was already assured of the gospel and his salvation. He was already living honorably. He was already obviously being used mightily in the hands of God. But there's a great lesson here. And that is that even the best saints, even the man who has assurance, the man who is upright, still needs prayer. That's what the apostle teaches us. He needs to pray himself, and he'll do that in a moment, both for himself and for others. But he especially needs others to pray for him, just like Paul at the end of Ephesians. I often think 
that the strength of the worship service depends upon the prayers of the people. And again, I ask you, do you pray before we come in here? It's often obvious to me uh, when we have a bad service that we hadn't been praying. And the opposite is also true. But you see, what I'm saying is that we all need prayer, all of us, even the best of us. Whatever attainments we make in grace in this life, we all have to realize that there's still more to be made because we haven't finished the journey. We haven't gotten where we're going. We're still pilgrims this side of heaven, and only by prayer can we ever hope to get there. And so I say with him, to close out this first point, pray for us, that is, pray for me. Pray for the worship. Pray for others. And yes, I too will pray for you, which is the next point. He expresses his prayer for them. His prayer is this. If you look at uh, verse 20 and 21, it's a very full statement. I'm going to dissect it. But in summary, his prayer is that God would work in them a true obedience according to his perfect will through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. The same prayer that Paul prays for the Ephesians at the beginning of Ephesians, that according to the power of his might, he might work in you the fullness of salvation, which includes doing his will. And the amen at the end of his prayer indicates not only that the prayer is over, but in in some sense that he's brought everything that he's saying to a close. He's concluding the epistle, and he concludes it with a prayer, which I think is very telling. He is expressing, in other words, in this prayer, what his desire was all along in writing this letter, namely that the priesthood of Jesus Christ, or rather through the priesthood of Jesus Christ, God would bring the readers and the hearers, which is us, to a true obedience to the gospel, Working in them what is well-pleasing in his sight. I think that's a very fitting uh, summary of what he's been after in the epistle. So that's why he wrote the letter. It wasn't to make them doctors of theology. I know some of the highest and loftiest theology you can find in the New Testament is found here. But that isn't why he wrote it. He wasn't uh, putting on a seminary class. He was writing to Christians in order to make them better Christians. And if you thought this letter was all theology without any practical benefit, then I say to you, you had better read it again. It's one of the most practical letters in all of the Bible. And so he prays that the letter might make them better and more mature Christians by the working of uh, by the working of God's grace. In other words, as every preacher does, he begs God that his work might become to the people an effectual means of grace. That God would use it for their benefit, either for their conversion or for their sanctification. But we realize, we preachers realize, and even the apostle in writing scripture realizes that God must do it or else it can't be done. You see, in some sense, nothing that he says has any effect or does it matter until he prays. Man cannot make himself better, and neither can the preacher, neither can the apostle. Try as he might, he can never cause a man to do what is pleasing in the sight of God. Only God can do that. And of course, the whole point of the epistle, which is also the point of the prayer, is to show us how eager God is to do so. That he's praying not to a reluctant God, but to a God who desires this very thing. Not only that, but how it is that God intends to do so. How it is that God intends to work in us what is pleasing in his sight. And even how he has already done so. Which is evident to us in three main ways. In this very full uh, prayer, though it is only two verses. Three main ways. First, 
in speaking of God doing this work in us, he reminds us of what God has done already, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead. Now, this is perhaps more significant than you realize in connection with what uh, all he's been saying. If you go back to what is in many ways the central statement or the thesis of the epistle at the very beginning, chapter one, verse three, you will find it there. He says, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had himself, this is the key phrase, when he had himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That really is the framework of the whole epistle. He sacrificed himself for sins and he went to the father and is now interceding for us. Atonement and intercession. Those are the two pillars upon which uh, the, the whole of the epistle stands. And so that is the central assertion of the whole epistle summed up in a single sentence. Uh, let's see. Chapter 12, verse 2, we find something similar. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He suffered under cross. Uh, he suffered at the cross. Now he went to the Father. And again and again and again, we find that kind of thing in the epistle. Having died once for all, he has gone into the presence of the Father in the, th- in the throne room of heaven. Or the heavenly sanctuary. And there he appears as our intercessor. Intercessor. But the point is, in speaking of his death in connection with what follows, is that death was not the end for him. It was the end of sin. It was the end of all sacrifice for sin. In some sense, it was the end even of death itself, or at least the fear of death and its bondage, as he says in chapter 2. But it wasn't the end of him or his priesthood. Still, he is acting as a priest, carrying forward the merits of that one perfect sacrifice into the throne room of heaven and presenting it there. And that presentation is the essence of his intercession by which we are saved to the uttermost. Chapter seven, an intercession that is possible only because he is alive today. Unlike the priests of old, he continues forever and he is not prevented by death from continuing in his priesthood. Let me read chapter 7, verses 22 through 24. By so much uh, more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. The point is he wasn't, but they were. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him Since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is alive today. But how is that so seeing that he died? Are we to imagine that in reality he did not die? No. For that would be to undo his greatest achievement. That by one sacrifice for sin, by his death on the cross, he put away sins once for all. So, yes, he really did die. This is the great pillar upon which our salvation stands and is secure, the death of Christ. But the point is, once more, his death was not the end. It was the end of the old priest, but not of his priesthood. It was really only the beginning. He went on with his life, even though he died. 
And this is where the resurrection comes in. The God of all peace who raised him from the dead. That though he died as a man, he rose again. And by the power of that indestructible life he possesses, he lives forever in the presence of God to intercede for us. Yes, and you see, it was God who raised him up, the God of all peace. The same God he appeals to in his prayer. The same God who is at work in you. You see, God did not hand his son over to death and raise him up to no purpose. No, he did so in order to work his might in us by the same power. And so the apostle here prays with that confidence uh, that is found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That by the the very same power by which he raised Christ from the dead, he is now at work in you. And from this, secondly, he goes on to speak of uh, Christ in his resurrection as the great shepherd of the sheep. May the God of all peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep. If you think of what Jesus says in John chapter 10, where he speaks of himself as the good shepherd. You find him saying this, John chapter 10, verses 11 and 14. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep. And I'm known by my own. He's describing the pastoral relationship that exists between himself and the sheep, which is, we discover, a great pastoral relationship, the greatest one there is. The point here is to see him as the great shepherd and the great high priest and to see them in connection with one another. Especially as he is described in John chapter 10. He's not only our great high priest in his sacrifice. But he's equally our great shepherd. Who both knows us and dies for us. Indeed it is precisely you see. As our great high priest that he becomes our great shepherd. The great shepherd of the sheep. As he expresses his great love for them. And that is the way we are to understand. uh, The pastoral relationship that exists between us and Jesus Christ. And I especially love the addition of the word great. He's our great high priest. He's our great shepherd. In other words, there's no one better. And no one ever did it better than him and no one ever could. You can't think of the priesthood. You can't think of what you can't think of the pastorate without thinking of Jesus Christ as the great pastor and the greatest pastor. And yet at the same time, seeing Christ as the great shepherd of the sheep helps to underscore the prior admonition that we submit to our leaders, our local shepherds, our local pastors. In doing this, he's really doing exactly what Peter did in 1 Peter 5. We're speaking of the same need, that is, that we might submit to the leadership of the church. He reminds us in verse 4 of the chief shepherd, not the great shepherd, but the chief shepherd. It's the same idea. In both places, we find the apostles saying, we can't think of our local shepherds without thinking of our great shepherd or our chief shepherd. Returning to this prayer, seeing now that he's been raised and assumes the chief place on heaven and earth. Let us see him as the great shepherd of the sheep. The one who not only lays down his life for the sheep, but who now that he is raised constantly looks after her welfare from heaven. In other words, again, his death was not the end. It wasn't the end of himself, nor was it the end of this pastoral relationship that he describes in John chapter 10. It was only the beginning. And as he goes now to the Father, what he is doing is interceding for us. He's looking after us as our great shepherd in heaven. And what he is doing specifically 
is exercising his grace that God's will might be worked out in us so that we would be able to do what is pleasing in his sight. For he has great sympathy for the sheep and he stands ready to help at all times as with all true shepherds of the sheep. Then thirdly, he mentions, not surprisingly, what has been the great emphasis, the blood of the everlasting covenant. He says, may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work and so on. So that's the final peg. Let us always remember, I've been speaking of the finality of the cross. It was done once for all. And surely that's the emphasis of the epistle. He doesn't have to die over and over again. He died once. And yet let us always remember that though that blood was shed only once, it always retains its power. As Calvin says, it brings forth fruits the same as though it were flowing always. It is through this blood that we are cleansed and sanctified and made acceptable, as he indicates in chapters 9 and 10. Uh, Just as he in the same chapters tells us that it is through that blood that the everlasting covenant is ratified and sealed and can never be undone. In fact, we sung that together, or we sang that together uh, in hymn 99. The everlasting, unchangeable covenant. It was made so by the blood of Jesus. And by that same blood, he's saying, he still works in you what is well-pleasing in his sight. Through the blood, through Jesus Christ. He says it twice. You see, there's only one way for God to answer this prayer. That God would make us better. That he would sanctify us and cause our sanctification to be always advancing. Only one basis of the believer's sanctification. And it is the same way by which he pardons us freely. Namely, by the blood of Jesus Christ. So let us see our sanctification as with our justification as found only at this altar, that is to say at the cross and nowhere else. In other words, in pursuing good works, which he speaks of here, we must see that they're not only those which are according to his will. Think the Ten Commandments here, but also as only uh, coming by his power working in us, he says. Only he who has his will working in us. Is he who does any good works at all. And that power is only made available to us at the cross of Jesus Christ. But you see, seeing now that God has done this and that Christ has shed his blood uh, for us and God has accepted that blood and that sacrifice. We may confidently expect that God will answer this prayer and that he always is answering this prayer. That it's always the will of the father to make us better. That blood which was shed and which ratified the eternal covenant will not fail to bring forth the fruits of that covenant as expressed in Jeremiah. That God will pardon our sins and remember them no more, but also that he will give us a new heart and he will write that law upon our hearts. God will not dishonor the work of his son. He will not throw away a blood which was shed at so great a cost. No, he will always honor it. And he will use it for our sanctification, the working of his will and that which is well-pleasing in his sight. But then following this, in verse 22, we find an appeal, he says, to bear with this word of exhortation, which is also a fascinating uh, thing to consider here at the very end. And a fitting summary of the, the epistle. I appeal to you, brethren, he says, to bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you in a few words. 
Now that could be taken in two senses. Either as the closing appeal, I want you to bear with chapter 13, a chapter that's full of uh, closing admonitions and which is written very briefly. It could be taken in that sense. And I admit, initially I thought it was, or far more likely, and almost certainly, the whole epistle. When he says, bear with this word of exhortation, and also I've written with you briefly, he's talking about the entire letter. In other words, what he's saying, and I think you would have to agree, that the whole of the letter assumes the form of an exhortation. He is exhorting us from the first verse in the first sentence. It is like a sermon which he preached to them. In fact, I remember in one of the preaching books I read in seminary, uh, it used the book of Hebrews as uh, a model of true preaching. And so I think there is a kind of general agreement among Christians that this is like a sermon which he preached. For all of its theology, I've already said this, but let me say it again. For all of the high theology found in the book of Hebrews, let us always remember, and I'm going to say the same thing about uh, Romans when I begin to preach that very soon. It's addressed to simple Christians in order to encourage them and admonish them to steadfastness in the faith and then telling them how to do so. How it is they can hope to persevere and endure. And throughout we see the force of admonition bearing upon them and us. It's like a weight. He says, bear with it. The King James actually uses the word suffer. Suffer this word of exhortation. Well, if you understand that, I think you're beginning to understand what he means. And perhaps our own experience of this book. There is no one who can read this letter nor sit under it being preached without feeling the weight of it bearing upon him. Weighing upon him and even suffering under the weight of it. I think this is seen equally and perhaps most strikingly in the warnings, which are admonitions in themselves. Never did scripture seem so terrifying to us as in those passages, the apostasy passages. Yes, and we must bear them too. We can't set them aside or ignore them. You see, it isn't easy. He recognizes that. In one sense, we'd almost rather not do it. And perhaps this explains in some sense my own reluctance in preaching this book for so long. Who can bear the searching admonitions of this book? Well, you see, they can. He seems confident of that. They only need a little bit of encouragement to do so. Having said all that he said and recognizing the weight, the difficulty says, bear with this word of exhortation. And it's no different with us. I know it, it, it isn't easy. At times we've all felt that this letter nearly killed us. I still remember my daughter telling me after one of the apostasy sermons, that was a deadly sermon, Dad. Yet somehow we all endured it. And here we are at the end. We all made it this far. We're all still here in church. We haven't given up the race, the, the fight of faith. We are still, I hope, as determined as ever to get to heaven. And all that we need at this point is a little bit of encouragement and a reminder to bear with this word of exhortation. The great work now to be done is to get to work and to take it all to heart and to put it into practice. But let me also say that I'm a little amused at the words in a few words or briefly, as some of you have it. I don't think this is one of the shorter letters in the Bible. It's one of the longest. And yet he says, I've just written to you uh, a brief, a brief little letter. 
a short sermon. I think I read if it was read aloud, it would take an hour. And yet, I find it is correct as well. I find that it describes accurately what we have here. Once you realize his theme, you suddenly see that it's just a a few brief words, that he's just scratching the surface, the priesthood of Jesus Christ. We've only begun to consider it, and it will take the rest of our lives as Christians and even the eternity of our lives in heaven to really consider it. And I'm sure that here we have his reason that he desired to be with them because he could only briefly touch upon it here. But how he longed to preach sermon after sermon after sermon to unfold the great themes unfolded in this epistle. But the last thing we see, look at verse 25. It's so easy to just treat these closing words as a throwaway verse. I don't think we can do that here. Grace be with you all. Amen. What a fitting word to close out this of all epistles. Grace be with you all. Amen. Yes, and if grace be with them, grace as it was described so richly and so fully here in this letter. Grace as it is found only in the priesthood of Jesus Christ and his loving heart. Grace to help in time of need. I'll quote it one last time. Chapter 4, verse 16. If this grace be with them, then all that he prays and all that he wishes to to find in them by this word of exhortation that we call the book of Hebrews is certain to happen. For what is grace but the power of God to undeserving sinners? The working of his might in those who deserve nothing but wrath. The effectual application of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. You see, what he wants most is what I want most. For, for all of you to know and to experience this grace, that it would be with you as a companion and a guide. That would, it would abide in your lives as an active principle. That you would be established in it and by it, as he said in the prior verses. And so I say with him, as I close, grace be with you all. Amen. Let us now come to the table.